Well, for those who are visiting, we are doing a, a flyover of the Bible where I'm attempting to bring one sermon roughly for each book of the Bible. And the purpose of this is to see the big picture of God's great plan of redemption and the restoration of his kingdom. And as we do that, taking one sermon roughly for each book of the Bible, are we not seeing that God often chooses to use individuals, great men and great women, to accomplish his plan? And so we've seen Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Samuel, David, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz. Last week, we, or two weeks ago, we looked at Ezra. Today, we're going to look at Nehemiah. You might be turning in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Great men and women that God used. Sometimes the flaws, the warts and blemishes of these servants of God are made known to us. So Noah got drunk. Moses got angry. Abraham lied. David committed murder and adultery. Sometimes the imperfections of these servants of God are revealed to us. At other times, they're not. We're, we don't learn anything really negative about Joseph, who was read about this morning. Ezra was presented in a good light. None of the sins of Ezra were seen. And as we study Nehemiah this morning, none of his blemishes, none of his sins are brought forth. Now, do we know that they are sinners? Absolutely. Because the Bible makes the grand statement in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But even when their sins are not mentioned, there's one thing that none of these godly men and women could do, and that is to change the hearts of the people to whom they ministered. They exercised great influence on the communities to which they ministered, but one thing they could not single human heart. That's why all of those great men and women in the Bible point forward to the greatest one, who is not a mere man, but the God-man, Jesus Christ, because he alone can change people's hearts, and he does so. He said in John 8, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. When we know the truth about him, we are changed. In John 8, 36, if the Son makes you free, you are free. All of these great servants of God point forward to the greatest servant of God toward whom we're moving in the Bible, and that is Jesus Christ. Well, today we're in the book of Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah were originally combined as one book in the Hebrew canon, and for good reason, because they're very similar. They both involve the rebuilding of the reconstituted community of Israel after their 70-year exile in Babylon. Both Ezra and Nehemiah are godly men, and they were used of God to help reform the restored community. Ezra was a priest and a scribe, an expert in the law, and his main job was to teach the people the law. Nehemiah, as we'll see, was a political leader. He was the governor, and his main task was to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Um, so both of them are godly men, and both were used of God, and they overlapped. They overlapped in time, and they overlapped in purpose. As we'll see, Ezra was present when the wall was dedicated, and that I followed of Nehemiah. We're going to look briefly at the place in God's big plan and then some practical lessons from the book of Nehemiah. 
Um, before I, I do that, before we plunge into the plot line of Nehemiah, let me just note that these two men were very different in temperament. Ezra presents as one who's kind of laid back and quiet and reserved. Nehemiah, as we'll see, is a much more dynamic and aggressive and formidable leader, but God used both of them, showing that God can use people of different temperament, different personality for his purposes. So let me take you through the book of Nehemiah in an overview, a survey, the plot line of Nehemiah. In chapter one, we are introduced to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. Now, R.C. Sproul reminds us that the cupbearer was not like the food tester of medieval courts. In medieval times, there was a, a food tester who would basically test the food or drink the wine for the king and uh, to see if somebody was trying to poison him so he would forfeit his life to preserve the life of the king. He's saying that wasn't the cupbearer in the Persian court. Rather, the cupbearer was a ranking position. It involved giving counsel to the king. And so Nehemiah was a member of the royal court, a highly trusted individual. And what happens is there he is in Babylon, other Israelites, Jews, had gone back to the land in previous years. Ezra had gone back to Jerusalem 13 years earlier in the, in the uh, seventh year of Artaxerxes. Now we're in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, and certain men come from Jerusalem, his brother Hanani and others, and they report to Nehemiah how things are going back in the homeland. And the report is distressing. The people are distressed and reproached. The wall is still broken down. The gates are burned. When Nehemiah hears what's happening in his beloved homeland, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts, and he prays to the God of heaven. And his prayer includes confession of sins. He knows what his people deserve. It's a call to God to remember his word of promise, a reminder of the way God has delivered them in the past by his great power, and Nehemiah specifically prays that God would give him favor and compassion in the eyes of the king because he has a plan to go back to Jerusalem and be of help. And so we're introduced to Nehemiah. Now we have the examination of the wall and determination to rebuild. Four months after hearing that bad news, that sad news about what's happening in Jerusalem, Nehemiah is serving wine to the king. And he's sad. He's sad because of what's happening to his people back in his homeland. And the king notes that he is sad and questions him. And we we're told in chapter 2, Nehemiah was very much afraid. The reason for that is in a Medo-Persian court, you are not allowed to show any negative emotion to the king under penalty of death. But Nehemiah is bold to tell the king why he was sad. It's because of, of what's happening in his homeland, that the city is desolate and the gates are burned. And the king says, well, what are you requesting? And, and Nehemiah says, basically, I, I'd like to be sent back. I'd like to take a leave of absence to go back to Jerusalem. The king asks, well, how long will you be gone? He tells him. Nehemiah also has the boldness to ask the king for uh, soldiers to accompany him, to give him a safe passage, and also to send letters to the, the man who's heading up the king's forest so that he could supply timber for the, the rebuilding of the, of the uh, walls and the gate. And then we're told that the king, here's a, a, a pagan king, granted Nehemiah's request, quote, because the good hand of my God was on me. So the king sends soldiers to accompany him, and he is provided with timber to help rebuild the wall and the gates at the king's command. As soon as he gets there, 
enemies arise. And they're mentioned by name. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite. They were displeased, it says, that one had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So what does Nehemiah do? He stays in Jerusalem for three days and he surveys the situation. He takes a horse and he rides around the situation. He doesn't tell anybody what he's doing, but secretly he assesses the damage of the walls. And then he appeals to the people. He reminds them that the king's favor has been upon him. In other words, look, God is in this thing. And he says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But the enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah, mock and despise them, accusing them of rebelling against the king, to which Nehemiah responds, the God of heaven will give us success. Then chapter three, we have the actual construction of the wall. And in 32 verses, it details how various ones are building different parts of the wall and and reconstructing it and making repairs. The priests were doing the work. The Levites were doing the work. At one point, chapter 3, verse 12, it even mentioned certain daughters that were involved. It was a family affair. The various Israelites rebuilding the wall in front of their homes. Chapter 4 presents us with continued opposition, but an interesting twist. When the, when the aforementioned enemy, Sanballat and Tobiah, heard that they were rebuilding the wall, they were angry and they resumed their mocking. Let me give you a sample of that. Chapter 4, verse 2. They say, can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now, Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and he said, even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break down their stone wall. And so they're mocking the builders. To that, Nehemiah responds with this prayer of imprecation. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. He prays to God and the people are strengthened. They have a heart to work. And the wall at that point is built to half its height. Well, the enemies are provoked even more. They get even more angry, and this time they determine to physically fight and try to hinder the work. To this threat, Nehemiah again prays to God, but listen, he also sets up a guard day and night. When he hears that the enemies are plotting to come and secretly kill the Jews, Nehemiah is tipped off to that, and this is what he does. He actually arms the families who are building the wall with swords, spears, and bows, and he encourages them with these words. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And from that time on, he begins this practice. Half the men do the work with trowels, rebuilding the wall, The other half stand guard with spears, shields, bows, and breastplates. Even the builders, he arms with a sword at their side. He has a trumpeter stand near him. Sometimes for the sake of unity, he needs to rally the people to come together because they're divided. And he also stationed men at night in Jerusalem to guard against night attacks. So they're not only building with trowels, they're prepared to battle with swords. Well, 
in chapter 5, we have a bit of a shift. It shifts from the external enemies that were opposing the work to trouble within the camp, sin within the camp, from external threats to an internal problem. There was apparently a famine, and some of the poor Jews there were were in desperate straits, and some of their rich Jewish brothers were charging them interest, enslaving their sons and daughters, confiscating their property. When Nehemiah hears this, it angers him. And he gathers the rich people and he pleads with them not to do this, but to return the confiscated property. Reading from chapter 5, verse 10. Please let us, let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Well, thankfully, the rich people uh, agree to do that, and they do follow through. And um, at that point, Nehemiah gives something of a personal testimony. He says, whereas previous governors domineered the people, and took advantage of a, of a food and monetary allowance that they were given as governors. He makes the point that he did not do that. He did not take any of the food allowance that he was owed. He did not domineer the people for the sake of the good of the people. And then he prays, as you see, he's praying throughout. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Next, we read a further opposition. When the enemy Sanballat, Tobiah, and a certain Geshem the Arab hear that progress is being made on the wall, that the breaches are being closed, and only the doors needed to be set up in the gates, they approached Nehemiah with different tactics. One of their tactics was deception. Four times they try to lure him down. Come, we want to talk to you. But he was aware that they were aiming to harm him. And he made that great statement. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. When that didn't work, to lure him down from the wall, they try another tactic, intimidation by false accusation. They're basically accusing the Jews, you're rebelling against the king, and Nehemiah, you're planning to be a king, which would be a threat to King Artaxerxes. It's the same tactic the Jews used against Jesus, right? Oh, you claim to be a king, a rival to Caesar, it was the same devilish tactic used then. Nehemiah repudiates the lies, recognizes that this is an attempt to frighten and discourage, and he prays, but now strengthen my hands. Another ploy was the enemies hire a certain prophet to try to instill fear in Nehemiah and get him to take refuge in the temple so they can spread a bad report about him. See, you know, Nehemiah's afraid, he's, he's hiding in the temple. Instead of taking refuge in the temple, Nehemiah takes refuge to God in prayer. And he says, remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Noadiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Well, the wall is rebuilt in 52 days. And the enemies who had opposed it were disheartened because it says they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. So instead of the people being discouraged, their enemies were discouraged because they saw that God was in this. God was helping them. And then we have a chapter of genealogies where we read that 
um, when the wall was completed, the temple, um, those who served in the temple were appointed duties, gatekeepers, singers, Levites. Because remember, the whole purpose of Jerusalem was the worship of God. The wall was being built to protect the people so that they could do what God had called them to do, and that was to worship God. We come to chapter 8. There's a celebration around the law of the Lord. It's a happy chapter, and here's where Ezra comes into the picture. Ezra had come 13 years earlier. He's still there. Here's where we see Ezra and Nehemiah, these two great leaders together. They are, uh, Ezra is called upon to read the law of the Lord. And it's interesting, just like in Ezra, he had to be called upon. He was a more retiring man. Nehemiah was out front. He was an aggressive, initiating leader. Ezra, a little bit more retiring. They had to ask him, but when they ask him, he comes forth and he reads the scriptures to them uh, from the day, daybreak until noon. And twice it says, the ones listening were men and women and all who could listen with understanding. It's interesting that Ezra stood to read the law and explain it behind a wooden podium. It may be the basis for our pulpit. It may be the basis for what they did in the Jewish synagogue. And um, we have pulpits today, raised pulpits, um, as they had back then. And as he read the law, he also explained to give the sense so that they understood the reading. And he had other men who read. I mean, that's a long time to read from daybreak to noon. There were about 13 others who helped him in the reading. And then Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe, along with the Levites, proclaimed that this was a holy day. They're reading the law. They're restoring the law to the people. Well, the people began weeping, seemingly out of sorrow, that the law of the Lord had been so neglected. But the leaders declared, do, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And this is a time of celebration and joy. Eat, drink, give portions to those who have nothing, and make a great rejoicing. And so, as the law is recovered, they rejoice. But, in chapter 9, we have one of the great prayers of the Bible, the prayer of confession. You see, the, one of the purposes of the law of God, Romans 3.20, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. And as these people are hearing, hour after hour, the reading of the law of God that had been neglected for so many years, they are convicted. We didn't know these things. We didn't know the will of God and the commands of God. And so reading the law loads them down with a sense of sin and leads to this great corporate confession of sin. The people gather in sackcloth. They put dirt upon their heads and they're fasting. And the law, the book of the law is read for a fourth of the day. And then certain Levites lead in this great prayer. Let me just summarize the prayer that they're making, this restored community of Israel. First of all, they exalt the glorious name of the Lord as the creator of heaven and earth and the giver of life. They recall that God had made a covenant to Abraham and promised to give them a land, and he did give them that land. They recount God's miracles in Egypt, how he freed his people from affliction, dividing the sea, drowning the pursuers, how he guided them by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, how he gave them true laws on Mount Sinai. He revealed to them his holy Sabbath. They remember in that prayer God's provision for them in the wilderness, providing bread from heaven and water from a rock. 
And they call attention in that prayer to the great graciousness, compassion of God's slowness to anger, his loving kindness, despite their stubbornness and idolatry. They review how he brought them into the land. He multiplied them like the stars of heaven. He gave kings and cities into their hands. He allowed them to take possession of houses, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees. They ate and were filled. But then in that prayer, those leading remind the people how they became disobedient and rebellious. They put God's law behind their backs. They killed his prophets who admonished them. They committed great blasphemies. He refers to the period of the judges where they were oppressed by various enemies. But every time they cried to God, God sent a deliverer and rescued them many times according to your great compassion. But then after bearing with their stubborn shoulders, it says, and stiffened necks, eventually he gave them into the hands of enemies to take them captive. But the prayer goes on saying that even then, Lord, you didn't make an end to us. You're gracious and compassionate. And the prayer affirms that God has been just and faithful and that Israel has acted wickedly. And as leaders and people, they have not kept his law or paid attention to his admonitions or turned from their evil days. In that prayer, there's acknowledgement that though they were back in the land, they're still slaves of the kings that rule over them. As a result of that, they make a resolution to obey God. In chapter 10, there's a signed document with Nehemiah and dozens of names, leaders, pledging themselves to obey God. Now that they're informed by his law, we're going to obey him. We're not going to intermarry with the people. We're not going to buy or sell on the Sabbath. We're, not going, to, we're going to give our various tithes. We're not going to neglect the house of God. Chapter 12, the wall having been finished is dedicated. And it's a time of celebration with hymns of thanksgiving, cymbals, harps, lyres, Two great choirs singing antiphonally. The final chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, after serving 12 years as governor, takes a trip back to Babylon. When he returns, he finds trouble on several fronts. Here's the restored community of Israel chastised by their exile into captivity, now trying to reform when he gets back he finds more trouble. First of all, Tobiah, one of the enemies, has been housed in the temple by one of the priests. He's living in the temple. He's an enemy. Secondly, the Levites have not been given their due portions, and so they've gone to their cities. They're not being treated, cared for well. They're the ministers in the temple. A third problem is that there are people conducting business on the Sabbath, which was forbidden. And a fourth problem, that they would not do that. And then he prays, remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. The book ends with Nehemiah's final recorded act of purifying the priests and the Levites from everything foreign, appointing duties for them. And he prays this final prayer, remember me, O my God, for good. So that's the story of the book of Nehemiah. Now, very briefly, how does Nehemiah fit in with the big picture that we're trying to, to look at, the overall plan of God in bringing in his kingdom? Well, the end game of human history and biblical history is the establishment of God's rule over the entire creation, the kingdom of God. And we ask the question, are we there yet? And you would say, no, we're, we're not even close. 
Regarding the kingdom of God, we're looking at Israel as the partial kingdom. Here are the covenant people of God, the best he has to work with. And they have been disobedient, rebellious, idolatrous. They were sent into exile. Now they're back in the land. And they're, they're restored, making another go at it with a fresh start. But they are still terribly inconsistent, aren't they? They're still marked by a lot of sin. And the point is this. Ezra and Nehemiah, as godly as they are, cannot give the people what they ultimately need, and that is new hearts to obey. The old Mosaic covenant can command, but it cannot give what they need most, hearts to obey. Moses could not give the people new hearts. Ezra could not give the people new hearts. Nehemiah cannot give the people new hearts. But there's one coming who has the power and the will to give new hearts. And that's the future new covenant, which is spoken of this way in Ezekiel 36. Then, in that future day, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The old covenant could not change people's hearts. The new covenant will, but that has to await the coming of a greater leader, a greater king than Moses, Ezra, and Nehemiah. That has to await the coming of God's Messiah, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, who will give those new hearts. Let's draw some practical lessons from the book of Nehemiah. First of all, I think we can say that the worship of God is a priority. Nehemiah was a political leader. He was the governor, but he had an intense spiritual concern for the people. Why? Because the purpose of the building of the wall was to protect the people of Jerusalem so that they might do what they were called to do, namely worship God. The theologian Tom Schreiner says, the wall did not exist for its own sake. Ultimately, the purpose was to offer praise and thanks to God. Jerusalem was intended to be a place of praise, and thus Israel celebrated the dedication of the wall with joy. The wall was only a means to an end. Because they were the covenant community of God called to worship him corporately. And if we move forward to our new covenant age, where is the place where the gathered worship of God is to take place. It's the local church, isn't it? And we don't have a wall, but we are concerned about a church building, right? We need a church building, whether it be a renovated building here or another building. But let's remember that as we pray for a, a, a suitable facility, it's a means to an end. The end is that we might have a place where we can worship and serve our God. The building is not an end in itself. It's a means to a greater end to facilitate the worship of God, which is to be done by God's local churches. Another theme from Nehemiah is God's sovereignty. As we saw in Ezra, we see it again here that God is sovereign even over the hearts of pagan kings. Did you see it? Nehemiah seeking permission from Artaxerxes to take a sabbatical. And he says, so I prayed to the Lord, chapter 2, 
verse 4, verse 8 says, And the king granted them timber for the temple to me because the good hand of my God was on me. As in the case of Ezra, so with Nehemiah, God turns the heart of pagan kings in their favor to not only give permission, but actually to fund and underwrite the rebuilding of the temple and the wall. God is sovereign, even over the hearts of pagan kings. And how does that relate to us? Well, are there situations you are sometimes in where you feel helpless? You feel that you are at the mercy of other people? Maybe you're at the mercy of your employer who writes your paycheck. Maybe you're at the mercy of another person in a relationship. Maybe you're at the mercy of donors who will support your nonprofit organization. We are never at the mercy of other people because our sovereign God holds the hearts of those people in his hand. And whatever answer comes to you, the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So again, we are buttressed with a clear sense of God's absolute sovereignty over all people and all things. But thirdly, we see in Nehemiah that God's sovereignty does not rule out human responsibility. This comes out very clearly in the book of Nehemiah. On the one hand, Nehemiah was, was one who trusted God over and over again at every turn, whenever he's opposed. He's calling out to God. He's crying out to God, committing himself and his cause into the hands of the Lord. Chapter 4, hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads. Give them up for plunder. Do not forgive their iniquity. Chapter 5, remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Chapter 6, verse 9, but now strengthen my hands. Chapter 6, 14, remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sam. He's constantly crying out to God, trusting God, depending on God. He is not slack in calling upon the Lord to act, whether it's to strengthen him for the task, to reward him for his deeds, or to bring judgment on his enemies. He's a man of prayer, trust in God. But notice another strand that runs parallel to trusting God to act. Chapter 4, verse 9, but we pray to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. 4.13, I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. 4.16, from that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built. In 1865, Charles Spurgeon started the publication of a magazine called Sword and Trowel. I believe it's still being published by the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And it comes from Nehemiah. Sword and Trowel. The people were building with trowels, but prepared to battle with swords if necessary. In 1653, Oliver Cromwell... A Puritan became the head of state in Britain, and he's known for this statement, trust God and keep your powder dry. Trust God and keep your powder dry. That combines trust in a sovereign God with a sense of human responsibility. By all means, we need to trust God, but we also need to recognize our own human personal responsibility. God is sovereign, but God is a God who uses means. And here is the balance of biblical truth. 
To trust God but not to use means is presumption. To use means and not to trust God is unbelief. And we need to avoid both imbalances. We need to avoid the imbalance of the hyper-Calvinist. Our brother Sean mentioned in Sunday school that William Carey dealt with hyper-Calvinists. He has a burden to go to India to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And someone says, sit down, young man. God will save the heathen when he well pleases. Wait a minute. God will save the heathen through the means of people going and making disciples. That's hyper-Calvinism, who waits for God to do something and we see it sometimes, uh, I'm waiting for God to save me. No, you're commanded to repent and believe. Don't wait for God to do something. Yes, God is sovereign, but you're commanded to repent and believe. We want to avoid hyper-Calvinism, trusting, looking to God's sovereignty and not taking responsibility. On the other hand, to take responsibility without looking to God, like, I've got to make it happen. I've got to make it work. Well, friends, that is atheistic, humanistic self-effort. And we want to avoid both of those. And I just ask you, as we move from this point, we all have tendencies. We all have inclinations. We are all prone to imbalance, aren't we? And I would just rhetorically ask you this question. To what imbalance are you prone? Are you prone to trust God and neglect means? Or you, are you prone, by your particular personality, to say, I've got to make it happen and forget to trust God. Wherever you are, you need the other aspect of truth. God is sovereign. Trust God. Call upon God. And then take responsibility for what he wants you to do. Leave to him what only he can do, but you take responsibility for what you can do. He is a sovereign God, but he's a God who uses means. Fourthly, God's work will always be opposed. Don't we see that? As we saw it in Ezra, the work of God here in Jerusalem is opposed by the enemies of God. The seed of the serpent, the enemies of God, Satan and his host will always be opposed to the work of God to the end. And so we read, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. What tactics did they use? They used mockery. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it themselves? Can they offer sacrifice? Can they finish in a day? They mock them. Uh, we live in a day, friends, we're told that is post-Christian. We're told that up to 1994, our society was favorable toward Christianity. From 1994 to 2014, neutral toward Christianity. From 2014 to the present, negative toward Christianity, and the values we hold, the age-old values grounded in the word of God are being mocked and despised. What should we do in the face of that? Well, I think we should be like the Apostle Paul who said to the Corinthians, it is a very small thing that I be judged by you or by any human court. It is the Lord who judges me. Let the world despise so long as God approves. And like Nehemiah, we do well to pray against those persecutors. He prayed prayers of imprecation, cursing. I think we have to be careful there. We want to first pray for God's mercy, but I think it's right at times to pray prayers of imprecation like the psalmist did against the enemies of God. If they're not going to repent, Lord, then bring judgment upon them. 
There were physical threats, right? They, they threatened to harm them physically on more than one occasion. What do we do with that? Well, there's a time to submit to suffering if we are publicly arrested. And there are saints suffering in prisons in North Korea and all over the world for their faith. And they're suffering unto the Lord. And they're not fighting with swords. At other times, we are to resist. And we need wisdom to know when to do what. There was deception and distraction. Hey, come down, Nehemiah. We want to talk to you. But he knew they were trying to harm him. He said, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. What does that say to us? We need to be aware of our callings and our priorities and stick with them and not let people distract us from those priorities that God has given us. There was false accusation as intimidation. You're looking to rebel, and Nehemiah, you're looking to become a king, contrary to King Artaxerxes. And so there was false accusation and intimidation Well, what did he say to that? Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. It's an attempt to frighten us. Sometimes accusations are not worthy of an answer. Don't answer a fool in his folly. Other times we need to answer. Sometimes briefly, sometimes at length. We need wisdom to know when we're falsely accused, does it deserve an answer? And if so, what answer should we give? Every situation will differ. But here we see that the work of God will always be opposed on planet Earth. We are pilgrims and exiles. We are living in a world in enemy territory, and we need to be armed with spiritual weapons to fight a continual warfare. Our weapons are truth, righteousness, faith, the word of God, prayer, and an aggressive gospel witness. And then finally, we can learn from Nehemiah's great example of leadership. Many view Nehemiah and the book of Nehemiah as a great example of leadership, good leadership. Let me just tick off a few things quickly. He feared the Lord. He feared the Lord. And because he feared the Lord, he did not domineer the people, which indicates that the vertical and the horizontal are connected. He makes that in the same statement. I did not do what the other governors did in domineering the people because I feared the Lord. First John says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who doesn't love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If there's fear of God vertically, there will be love for people horizontally. His fear of God led him to treat the people properly and not domineer them. He loved God in truth and he hated error and evil. Psalm 119.104 says, From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Is that true of you? Is there, are there things that anger you? The sin and evil in the world anger you now. We need to always be loving and kind and compassionate. But we ought to be angry about certain things because certain things make God angry, make Jesus angry, and make God's faithful servants angry. Don't go around pulling out people's hair, though, Okay. He's not indicted for that, but that's something he did. Ezra pulled out his own beard. Nehemiah pulled out the hair of other people. And then he was a kind and benevolent leader. He was kind and benevolent. He did not domineer the people. He He was what every leader should be, serving for the good of the people, not for power, not for ego, not for any form of self gratification. 
And I say this, first of all, to those of you who are leaders, business owners, and heads of organizations, the people under you should sense that you are there for their good, for their well-being, and for their prosperity. It should characterize us as pastors in the church, that we are not to lord it over you. We are your servants for Jesus' sake. It should characterize you as parents in the home, that you're there to do your children good, not to domineer them, but to have authority over them for the good of their souls. And it should characterize our politicians as public servants. Boy, how few and far between are they who truly have the good of the public and society in mind. We need more of that tribe. And Nehemiah here reflects the greatest servant of all, him who said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Why was Nehemiah an effective leader? He was a good leader because he was not impulsive. He surveyed the needs. He made a plan. He motivated his workers. He responded wisely and actively to solve problems and threats from without and from within. He was a good planner, a good organizer. He protected the people. He arranged for proper worship of the people of God. As such, he is an example of good leadership. So many good lessons from the book of Nehemiah for God's people. But if you are one who is not one of God's people, let me end with this. When the dust settles after this present world has been destroyed and God creates a new earth, when the dust settles, there will be but two categories of humanity with two destinies. And they're represented in Nehemiah by Nehemiah and Sanballat. Nehemiah was one who feared God, loved God, and lived and served for the glory of God. Sanballat, for whatever reason, was opposed to the work of the Lord. We don't know why. Jesus Christ said, you're either for him or against him. The worst thing in the world is for you to be against Jesus by not being committed to him. It will result in eternal woe for you. The best thing for you, my unbelieving friend, is to cast in your lot with Jesus. Put your trust in him as your only hope of salvation. Be on the right side of history, on the right side of God. Trust in Jesus. Be like Nehemiah and not like Sanballat. Well, let's pray and then sing. Lord, thank you for the book of Nehemiah. You've put it in your word. Help us to learn what you want us to learn from it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We come to the supper, hymn 252, When I Survey the Wonderful